How do we create more sustainable people, businesses and a more sustainable world? At EarthSelf, we believe you need to create harmony between humanity and nature. Sustainable the Podcast brings you inspiring interviews with leaders who are taking action to help create harmony between humanity and nature. Join your host, Tabby Jane, founder of EarthSelf, to discover nature-connected ways of being and working and become inspired to take action. In episode 96, I spoke with Howard Carter, creator of Incognito, a 100% effective insect repellent made only from natural ingredients. Today, I'm speaking to Andrew Hunt. Andrew started his career in the London advertising industry before a radical life change took him to the Gambia, where he won a UN World Business and Development Award for his work with small-scale producers. In 2012, he co-founded Aduna, an African-inspired health food brand and social business. Aduna makes delicious, nutritious health foods powered by African superfoods, helping boost your health while creating sustainable incomes for rural family African households. Aduna has been shortlisted for three Guardian Sustainable Business Awards, won the UK BAA Social Impact Investment of the Year Award, NatWest SE100 Storyteller Award and two Great Taste Golds. Andrew holds an MBA with a distinction from Said Business School at the University of Oxford and Aduna's range of African superfood powders and energy bars are sold in more than 2,000 stores in 18 countries. Welcome, Andrew. It is great to have you on Sustainable today. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's an honour to be invited. <laughs> I am so looking forward to it. That is a a good list of um, a short list for awards that you've had for your company. Uh, yes. Well, it's it's always nice to um, get recognition. Um, so we had a, a bit of a flurry of them uh, a couple of years ago. Um, hopefully, there'll be more in future. What was the inspiration for setting up Aduna? Um, so, um, to answer that question, um, I'll probably have to rewind to my, my time in advertising. Um, and I spent three and a half years uh, working in a big London advertising agency and really kind of helping to um, create brands and launch products for big multinational companies, but generally promoting products that I either didn't care about or in some cases actively disagreed with for clients who generally didn't appreciate it. And I ended up thinking, what am I doing with my life? Is this what it's really about? And, um, Although I was doing very well in terms of career progression and earning good money, um, I just found myself on Sunday evenings getting anxiety and, and not wanting to go into work in the morning. Um, and so that, that kind of questioning turned into something of an existential crisis. And the existential crisis um, blossomed into a, a full, fully-fledged kind of nervous breakdown um, and at the age of 24, I ended up um, unemployed, having quit my job and clinically depressed. And um, I was in that condition for about six months. And during that time, um, I really couldn't understand what had happened to me. Um, I tried everything to get out of it, ranging from antidepressant, psychotherapy, um, acupuncture, yoga, in my desperation, I went to a, a faith healer in Brighton, um, but none of it made any difference uh, until one day I got this random phone call from a family friend uh, called Angus Davison, who's a farmer in the UK and South Africa, um, offering me the opportunity to volunteer my marketing skills to a project in the Gambia in West Africa. And uh, I wasn't interested because when you're in that condition, you're not interested in anything, really. Least of all going to some godforsaken outpost in Africa. And I had all this negative stuff in my mind about Africa, having never been there, but it just been a, a passive consumer of the news over here. 
Um, so it's all the usual stuff, um, disease, corruption, warfare, um, <clears throat> etc. Uh, and I thought, no, if I'm if I'm going to be clinically depressed and suicidal, I'd rather do that from the comfort of my own home. Thank you very much. Um, but thank you, uh, thanks to my friends and family that put me on the aeroplane. And a couple of weeks later, I rocked up in what's known as the smiling coast of Africa, clinically depressed. Um, and it's something of a, a, a kind of miracle in my personal life that after that full six months of trying all those things and thinking that my life was over, it will never be the same again. It took just three weeks of arriving in Gambia to come back to life. Um, and instead of staying for the original planned six weeks, I ended up staying for almost four years and working with small scale producers of fruits and vegetables, as you do. Um, so I guess it was really that, um, it was that, that time in the Gambia um, where, number one, I got really inspired by Africa itself. Um, because having had all that negative stuff in my mind about what Africa would be like, what I found was that I was actually at this, this heart, um, this fountain of vibrancy, um, vibrancy and vitality and positivity. And I just felt like um, Africa had been so badly represented, so badly marketed, if you want to put it that way. Um, and I felt like there was a big opportunity and a big need to share um you know to share the real africa with people around the world um so that was number one and then number two was having spent years working um for these big multinational businesses and really not being interested in business at all um because i didn't feel i didn't really see the the, the value in you know what they were doing um or how they were doing it, I found myself, um, you know, by by chance, really, running this small social enterprise um, with a business model where where if the business did well, as in if we sold a lot of fruits and vegetables, then I could see the tangible positive impact um, on people's lives. Um, so, for example we'd have a big tomato harvest one week um, and I, I go back to that same community, that same household um, just one week later and the kids who weren't in school are now in school um, or they've started to build an extra room on their house so the whole family doesn't have to sleep in the same bed anymore. Um, and I was having these personal relationships um, with the growers and seeing this impact and that just felt really, really good. Um, so I guess um, Aduna, um, which was created, um, you know, a few years later, um, is really a way of uh, combining what I learned in the advertising industry about creating, uh, you know, how to create a powerful brand, um, but creating a brand that has purpose and has positive impact. Um, <clears throat> so combining really those two. Um, those two parts of my kind of professional experience into one. Um, and then, of course, there's, um, you know, the big inspiration behind the brand of uh, the what we call the inspiring possibility of Baobab. Hmm. Yeah, that is a, a really powerful story for how you ended up starting off on this journey. And I mean, to really have gone from a place of, of, like you say, being clinically depressed and suicidal to ending up in another part of the world and having your stereotypes challenged, but also to find yourself coming back to life through that in a matter of weeks. I mean, that's the powerful part of that story for me, first of all, and then moving back into it of what you're saying to... To be, to be able to be part of this small social enterprise and and see how when the tomato harvest has come in, the kids might end up in school as a result. I mean, that's that's powerful. Yes, and I think the the other thing I, I didn't mention, um, which I became really um, present to while I was there, 
as I was working inside a, an international NGO, um, was the abject failure of the aid model, um, particularly with agricultural aid in rural Africa. Um, and the um, I could go into more detail on that. <laughs> I could talk a lot about that. Um, but the, the business model which we adopted, I suppose, was an alternative. And I saw really the role, uh, the positive role that business could play um, in actually, you know, creating a market for the products from these small scale producers, a viable, long term, sustainable market. Um, and that was the one thing, really. In fact, you know, I, I, I got to know so many of these growers, you know, first-hand personal relationships. I always asked them, you know, if there was one thing that we can do to help you, what would it be? And these these farmers have a lot of problems, <laughs> um, you know, not least of all the weather and the pests, and the, you know, this and that, lack of um, compost materials, etc. But every single person that I asked that the answer was the same, which was market. If you can solve the market, then, you know, we can solve everything else. Wow. That's, that's kind of a powerful place to be in. So then you mentioned the Beobub. Um, have I said that right? Um, you've, yes. Um, <laughs> no. no right or wrong. I like um, that. So, so in, in, in Southern Africa, they call it Baobab. Uh, so that's fine. You were, you were saying it the Southern African way. Uh, in West Africa, including the Gambia, they call it Baobab. So I call it Baobab. And actually, my co-founder, Nick, he says Baobab. So we don't even have it consistent within uh, with dinner. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess um, all of what I described before was a kind of context, really. Um, and to make it concrete, um, was um, what I, 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 I called earlier um, the inspiring possibility of Baobab. Um, so if people listening to this have never heard of Baobab or Baobab before, um, firstly, it's, it's a tree. Um, in fact, it's not just any tree. It's, if you've ever seen The Lion King, it's that tree from The Lion King, that famous silhouette um, of a tree on the African savanna. Um, known as the tree of life um, and one of the amazing things about it is it's um, <clears throat> it's a prehistoric spe- uh, species that predates mankind um, it was there before the, con- the continent split and it's highly adapted to survive in the savanna which means it's it's drought resistant so it does that and by being a succulent, which means it absorbs and stores water in the rainy season. And then when everything else around is dry and arid, that's when it fruits. Um, and that's why they call it the tree of life. So these trees, um, there's no such thing as a, a baobab plantation. Every single tree is um, community owned or family owned and wild harvested. And um we estimate that there are 10 million households in rural Africa um, uh, that have access to these baobab trees and can harvest them. Um, and so these trees are, um, even if you'd, you'd seen the Lion King or you've, you've seen the silhouette of the tree, you probably didn't know that it had a fruit. Um, and it does. It has a unique fruit. It's the only fruit in the world that tries naturally on the branch and um when you uh, when you harvest it it's already dry um that means that doesn't require any refrigeration very easy for post-harvest handling uh, doesn't require any fertilizer um it's just a you know and it's a fantastic product for those reasons to get out of um rural africa um it's one of the most nutrient-dense foods in the world. So it's got six times the vitamin C of an orange, twice the calcium of milk, six times the potassium of bananas. It's almost 50% fiber, um, and it has the highest antioxidant of any whole fruit. So this is really, if, if there is such a thing as a superfood, I know that's a kind of uh, controversial term, but if there is such a thing as a superfood, then then this is, this is it. Um, 
So there's these 10, 10 million households who can harvest this fruit from a crop that already exists and currently goes majority to waste. So National Geographic estimated if there was a global demand for baobab, that existing crop could be worth a billion dollars to rural Africa. That is the scale, that's the sheer scale of the opportunity uh, that baobab represents for um, these, some of the most marginalized um, communities in the world. Um, so myself and my co-founder Nick, um, we started, we met because we were both um, kind of obsessed about baobab. <laughs> um, and we started brainstorming, you know, how could we take this obscure fruit, um, obscure, underutilized fruit, but with an amazing story and amazing um, you know, health benefits and a good taste. How could we, um, you know, what would it take to see that inspiring possibility become a reality for Baobab to become a billion dollar industry for rural Africa? Um, and that was the that was the, the possibility that inspired us to create Aduna, um, our, our business, really as a vehicle um, to bring this underutilized uh, product to market um, and to create it as a superfood, um, start a trend, create it as a superfood and take the steps necessary for this to become a, you know, a mainstream accepted food um, within uh, the Western world. That is kind of pretty impressive. Um, more the fact that the thing that kind of like struck, strikes me out of that whole story, Andrew, is that one, the, the trees are community or family owned, which is awesome, but there's 10 million households that can access this, but it's just going to waste in one of the most marginalised places and the market's worth 1 million or 1 billion US dollars. Um, that well, it's potentially, potentially. The, crop, the crop, Yeah, the size of the crop, if there was a market for it, could be worth a billion um, and it started from being, you know, six, seven years ago, from the market size being zero. So how do you, um, you know, how do you um, create a market for something that nobody's ever heard before? Um, and that's, uh, I think, you know, um, that's really the innovation in our business model is that we, we focus on, um, underutilized products and through what we call a demand creation business model and our thesis is that through um, through demand creation and that is effectively a, a fancy term for marketing um, we can create more impact more sustainably more systemically um, than through um, you know, being another production-led development project on the ground in Africa, and that's very hard for um, for um, let's say funders to get their head around because when people want to make impact in in Africa, in rural Africa, they generally want to spend their money in rural Africa. They want to build factories and train women and build dams and wells and things like that. They don't want to be, um, you know, paying a, a group of people sitting in London doing social media and cool stuff like that. Um, but actually, uh, you know, I think we're demonstrating that um, through focusing on underutilized crops and investing in demand creation, um, we're, we're driving the demand to pull through the supply um, and, and catalyze, you know, entirely new sustainable markets. Yeah, and I I like that. So then, like you say, there was in the past there was no demand for baobab, um, but you're creating this market through this demand creation um, business model that you're using. So I mean, how do you go about? Is it a case of raising education, or is it talking about the the benefits of the superfood? I mean, what what is the marketing approach to create the demand for baobab? Well, the first thing, the first thing 
is that uh, we needed to make it cool because we recognized that the market that we were going into was a superfood market. That was, uh, you know, that was where um, uh, Baobab could fit in and it's a big, fast growing market. So that, that really works. Um, but it's very much, you know, trend driven. Um, so we had to make it cool and aspirational and we did that um, with the use of the packaging. Um, but in fact, if I, if I take a step back before that, you know, we weren't sure which way to go with it to start with. And we started actually by talking to some food manufacturers and um, uh, they all said the same thing. They were like, love the story of the, of the tree and the fruit, love the social impact, taste nice, good health benefits. But quite frankly, we wouldn't use it right now because nobody knows what it is. So you're not going to put without a baobab on the side of your snack bar or your cereal box if nobody knows what baobab is so we realized that it was stuck in a vicious cycle of zero consumer awareness due to lack of product development and lack of product development due to zero consumer awareness so what we had to do was to break that cycle um, and invest in in you know making it known um, and I remember the uh, to get it even into the you know the obvious places where we started Planet Organic Whole Foods here in London um, where you get the you know early adopters like vegans vegetarians raw foodies yoga mums um, they didn't even want to take it to start with um, and we finally got it in to the first retailer was Planet Organic and we had it in all six stores um, for the first two months and we were really excited then we got the sales figures. And we found out that we'd only sold 10 units and uh, in all six stores over two months. And I bought one of them. Um, and I think my mum had probably bought the rest of them. Um, <laughs> we realised that, you know, look, it can be a great product and a beautiful piece of packaging sitting on the shelf of the right retailer with the right consumers walking past every day. But if nobody knows what it is, it ain't going to move. So... We, um, we had to do something radical. We, um, uh, we employed uh, <clears throat> or recruited um, 10 volunteers. Um, there's a distinction there to be made between a volunteer and an unpaid intern um, <clears throat> in terms of having a, uh, a real um, inspiring mission. Um, and they camped every day from 11 a.m. till 4 p.m., in each one of those um, six Planet Organic stores, sampling the product, um, showing the nutritional table, showing the fruit, showing a picture of the tree, explaining the impact, explaining the health benefits every day for six weeks. And then from that, it went from being in danger of being delisted to being the best-selling superfood in Planet Organic. Um, and then we rolled that out to, um, to um, Whole Foods as nature intended, got the same results. Um, and then it, it, it got picked up as a trend because if you can start a trend in London, um, then that's going to ripple internationally. And that was our strategy um, because apart from maybe, you know, California, potentially New York, um, you know, London is probably the, 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 the kind of trend setting capital for health um, internationally. Um, and so then we took that, we got quotes from the buyers. Um, we took that um, to Holland & Barrett, which is a, uh, a national retailer with 750 stores. Pretty much every high street in the UK has got one. And we said, look, this is what we've done with, um, you know, the key accounts in London. We want to do the same with you. Um, and they said, okay, great. Um, so we got in there. Um, got into 250 stores firstly and then they realized that uh, rather we realized that driving rate of sale in a um in a big retailer nationwide is not the same as doing it in a handful of stores in london um uh so we had to do something differently and we we got a we entered into this virgin um voom competition which is a nationwide entrepreneurship contest which if you win it um you uh, you get to, to uh, pitch to Richard Branson and essentially win a quarter of a million pounds marketing campaign. 
Um, so we entered into that and we entered our Make Baba Famous campaign and said, if you vote for us, um, it's a nationwide voting contest. If you vote for us, we'll use the money to make a Make Baba Famous campaign and to catalyze this industry that could be worth a billion dollars to rural Africa. Um, and so people were quite enrolled by that and it went viral. Um, and we got tweets from people like Jonathan Ross um, and uh, Billy Piper, <laughs> some really random celebrities that we don't know how they got hold of it. Um, and there we got to pitch to Richard Branson and we, we won a hundred thousand pounds marketing campaign. Um, and we um, we partnered with Holland and Barrett. They agreed to partner with us. And then we, we did a window takeover of all 750 stores with a Make Baobab Famous theme, explaining what Baobab was and what the health benefits were. Um, and that created a transformation in awareness of Baobab in the um, UK health food industry. Um, and then we've, you know, we've just been continuing. Um, we're not there yet, but, you know, um, we just keep on going. Um, and it's, it's really starting to happen. Mm. I mean, this is just such a fascinating story. I mean, me listening to it, I mean, I was actually quite emotional listening to your whole journey. Um, it, it really kind of like touched me as you're really focusing on getting, first of all, as you say, the volunteers, getting them camping out to catalyse the sales into bestsellers, going from just about no sales to that, and then make Baobab Interna or na nationwide campaign, winning the Voom competition and um, t doing the window takeover. I mean, it's it's a pretty phenomenal journey, and it kind of really gives an insight, I suppose, into what it takes to actually start a trend, especially one that has the intention of of helping create a more sustainable sustainable model for people in the African communities. Yeah, it's it takes a lot, and um, you know, it's very intentional. Um, and we looked at, you know, how did these other superfoods become superfoods, you know, like acai? How come acai is a superfood? And then we discovered, you know, when you research about it, that sure enough, you know, there was a, there was a, a company behind it and more or less there was an individual behind it who made that happen, you know. Um, and we have, um, it's interesting because we, we, we've sought investment, we've needed investment. We've, we've invested a lot in this um, and um, from the perspective of a purely commercial business or a pure, purely commercial investor, it's a bad idea. And I've, I've sat across the table from potential investors and um, they've said, you know, always they come from the same starting point, which is, can you patent it? <laughs> and I'm like, no, it's a prehistoric fruit. Um, we definitely can't patent it. And then, okay, can you control the supply? Um, no, it grows wild in 32 different countries. And then, you know, the next question is, so you want us to invest half a million pounds to educate the market about something, this baobab fruit, and then everyone else is just going to jump in behind you on your coattails for free. And we're like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole idea. Because we're trying to catalyze the market. But if you're, a, if you're someone, if you're an investor that's looking for a return in three to five years on your money, bad idea. If you're a, you know, and we have, we have uh, thankfully, you know, we, we have some fantastic angel investors from the Clearly Social uh, angels network which is a, an angel network of social impact um, individual social impact investors who support our strategy um, and um, you know because if you look at it through the lens of a venture capital or private equity business uh, investor typical one we spent way too much money for a business our size you know um, promoting something that's very awkward an obscure African fruit in powdered form you know um, you just wouldn't do it and we've spent too much money on it but then if you look at it through the lens of that we're looking at it through which is international development what we've spent to create a sustainable market um, which is now is you know established in not just the UK but internationally which we, we can't take 100% credit for but we've caused that um, intentionally what we've spent is 
nothing. You know, it's like a, a, a drop in the ocean in terms of all the money that gets plowed into these aid projects with zero to show for it. So, um, yeah, so I guess that's, um, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's difficult. And But we've had an amazing team of people, um, like really motivated, um, really expert marketing people who, you know, who've come and joined our team um, who have made this happen. Um, and, you know, they have stalked the, the writers of the Mintel trend reports because they're looking for content. And, you know, they've, they've got Baobab in there, you know, like three years in a row that it, this is the hot new ingredient. You know, and that, that doesn't come about by chance. You know, you have to, someone has to make a phone call or you, know, <laughs> you have to find out who these people are when they're putting the reports together, give them a good story. Um, and sure enough, you know, in the last 18 months, we've had Innocent, um, Coca-Cola, Waitrose, M&S have all launched products with Baobab as a named ingredient on the front of the pack. So it's, it's working. Yeah. Now that is, 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 is really, really cool. Now, I, I like the two lenses that you've kind of brought up there in terms of using a different business model. If it's all about equity, then it makes no sense. But if we're looking at international development, then it makes a lot more sense. And I, I think the lessons that I'm taking away from what I'm hearing you say is make sure you know what lens you're looking at at your business through so that you can accurately measure its impact and the money that's been spent, but also make sure that you get the the angel investors or the people who can really understand the big vision behind what you're doing and are able to buy into it and are fully committed to it. Yeah, that's right. You've got to have any investor, they've got to be mission aligned. And just to go back on one thing you said, I, I do think that the business will reward equity, um, but it's got to be a longer term vision you know that's it it's not a short term three to five years you know you know returns multiple returns it's you know looking over five to ten years um you know probably ten years um and it's um it's 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 having blended returns you know mm-hmm. yeah no a lot of interesting points there. So, I mean, in terms of we're, we're really kind of hearing, you know, the, the social, the environmental, the economic impact that Aduna has in terms of it is creating this impact that is allowing marginalised African communities to, to tap into the potential of this market. And I mean, what is the social impact that you're doing as you're doing this? I mean, what's the what's the other impacts that you're having? Because, yes, you're getting Baobab as a trend. More people are buying it. So you've now got it, as as it said, 2,000 stores, 18 countries. What's the impact that you're giving back in terms of that? So the, the impact is really, you know, what it's all about, the impact. And um, we're being able to measure the impact quite well now. Um, because from 2014, um, so our, our model is is a demand focused model. So um, we start by um, buying the product, you know, on the from a third party supplier until we get uh, you know enough traction, enough demand. Then we started to build our own supply chain. So we started in 2014 um, working with uh, a local partner in northern Ghana um, at the upper east of northern Ghana which is one of the um, poorest regions of West Africa um, it's incredibly remote um, the communities there really live on a subsistence basis so that means that they don't have any formal income um, during the rainy season they grow as much as possible um, in order to uh, number one, feed their household through the dry season, maybe store some surplus or maybe have some surplus to trade or sell in the local market um, because there's a seven-month uh, dry season where you can't grow anything um, and there is no income-generating you know, opportunities. Um, and those communities are really vulnerable, particularly now with climate change and the rains are becoming unpredictable. They're finishing earlier yields are getting lower um, or you know crops are being actually um, destroyed through lack of rain um, <clears throat> so those communities are really are very vulnerable in terms of actual basic food security so now um, we started working with just two communities 
in uh, 2014. Um, now we're working with 20 communities. Um, that's about 650 women. Um, and each of those women has a household of average six to eight dependents. Now, <clears throat> um, the case studies that we've done, so if you can imagine that the, the baobab, as I said, it, it fruits and it becomes ripe during the dry season. So this is the time when there is no income. Um, and because the baobab fruit was not being used for any form of, it wasn't assigned any value. This is an entirely new income stream to those household households. So it's not just like a fair trade premium on a product that is already a low price commodity. This is a brand new income stream. Um, and with the case studies we've done, um, we've seen an increase of household income of up to 10 times um, on multiple case studies we've done. And then we did a household survey of 30, uh, 30 households. And we saw that on average of those households, um, the dry season income is now on average double what the rainy season income was before. So <clears throat> from having zero income in the rainy season, it's now actually the best, the better time of the year. Um, and so we go out every, every year and we visit communities um, and you know, we hear consistently from cooperative to cooperative, um, the members talking about transformation of their lives um, from being, you know, worrying, uh, being vulnerable in a position to uh, worrying, can I even feed my family to knowing that you're definitely going to feed your family and then being able to add things on top of that, like education and healthcare, and, you know, just... Uh, it, it's an inc incredible um, depth of impact and uh, because we've been able to establish the model through the demand creation side and then through the supply chain side um, <clears throat> we've now attracted some recognition in terms of the awards you talked about but most importantly now um, we've um, uh, secured a, a major new partnership with the, the UN um, and isn't even dry on that yet um, but that includes a, a major grant to build out and expand our supply chain activities in Northern Ghana because we're currently working with 20 communities we're planning to double that to 40 communities um, next year um, but our local partner estimates there could be as many as 8,000 communities who could participate in the supply chain if the demand was there. So we're talking about the possibility of transformation for an entire region uh, of Northern Ghana. And Northern Ghana has been uh, a neglected side of Ghana, um, you know, Ghana has got a lot of positive press for growing GDP, um, uh, growing middle class over the last 10 years. And all of that has happened in the south of Ghana. And the north has been completely cut off from it. And it's a, a kind of area of strategic focus for the government um, and for international donors. Um, so one of the producers we, 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 we spoke to last time there said that he used to work in the cocoa industry in the south. And the cocoa industry employs a million people. Uh, it's Ghana's third biggest export after gold and oil. And, you know, guess what? The gold and the oil ain't going to be around forever, but the cocoa will. And this producer said to us, you know, he thinks that Baobab could have the potential to be the cocoa of the north. Um, and that is really our vision um, within northern Ghana. Um, you know, to create a sustainable export that um, can actually nourish that entire uh, region. Yeah. No, I mean, that is so phenomenal. I mean, congratulations on the, the UN partnership. And I mean, I was just doing some figures here as you were talking, you know, talking about how you went from two communities to 20 communities with 650 women, you know, an average of six. I didn't, I went lower end. So it's like you're already helping 3,900 people 
10x their income so that they can have the education so that they can have a better quality of life from the tree of life, which is really, really cool. But when you take it, you know, from the figures of what you've said, there's potentially 8,000 communities working on the premise that they've all got 650 50 women with, you know, six children. Like, you could be helping 1.5 million people through the creation of this industry. Yeah, it could be. It could definitely be a number like that. Well, I said there's, you know, there's 10 million households in in, in the 32 countries across Africa. So, uh, and from the UN perspective, you know, they don't think, they're always thinking large and scalable. So from their perspective, what we're doing in Ghana is, you know, a template that can then be replicated into different countries. So, um, and then we have to, of course, we have to get the multinationals on board because, to um, you know, to scale the demand side, um, we've done the hard graft on the early adopters in the you know health food industry, but where we need to get to is Snickers without a baobab, you know. Um, <clears throat> so that's where you start to get the kind of volumes that would be required to you know roll out to the hundreds of thousands of communities. Um, but it will come, you know, and and it's kind of a step by step. Um, and you know, I think that yeah, the, the the partnership with the UN is a is a big milestone along the way. We'll be right back after this short nature break. Yeah. And I mean, I was going to ask you how your focus on creating Aduna has impacted the way that you live your daily life. But I mean, it sounds as if it's just completely transformed it. <laughs> um, yes. Um, well, obviously, there was a there was a major transformation that happened in Africa before Aduna, where I really got clear on um, that money was not, you know, was not what I was chasing uh, and that actually um, what was most important to me is to wake up every morning and want to get out of bed um, and that what would have that be uh, true for me would be to have an inspiring purpose and to live into an inspiring possibility um, and so yeah the creation of Baobab as a possibility for a billion dollar industry for Africa is one that really inspires me um and um that you know when you go through all the trials and tribulations of a small business uh you know it could have capsized many times over the over the last five or six years and you know we're still we're still not established you know our long-term future is still not established i would say um but it's that motivation uh, and then the support that that engenders from other people um, that will have it be successful. Um, but yeah, in terms of my personal life, um, obviously it's given me a great um, sense of purpose and direction, which informs everything. But um, and and then I think probably for the first few years, a great sense of self-expression and doing something I'm passionate about. Um, but um, yeah, I think there's also with that, um, it is a hard road, and um, you know entrepreneurship. Um, and we chose, we, we bit off a really um, tough challenge. Uh, we made so many mistakes. Um, and, uh, you know, it has been at times extremely stressful. And there was a point a couple of years ago when I would say that, you know, there was a very, you know, an unhealthy work-life balance um, where I was working, you know, pretty much every evening and at least three or four hours on a Saturday and a Sunday. Um, and not really having much of a life outside of Aduna. Um, <clears throat> so I think that um, that's been kind of balance has been uh, rectified, particularly since uh, my son was born. <laughs> Um, as he, yeah, he's, he's a major distraction. <laughs> I like it. A major good distraction, <laughs> though. <laughs> yeah. So who do you most admire and why then, Andrew? Um, I'm going to say my dad, um, because 
um, he he taught me to think big. So um, he basically, uh, and also, you know, from the, the, the values and uh, not to um, uh, not to underestimate, you know, the uh, the impact of, of my mum as well. But in terms of my dad, um, he's always looked at the big picture, um, small small things never really excited him um you know he'll start getting into a small thing and then and then he'll you know he'll create a big inspiring vision around it and um and i think he uh you know he taught me to do that to to think really big and to go for it and to um have the confidence that you can you know if not you then who really um and that's i think that's a massive kind of gift to me because I know that a lot of people don't have confidence um, and you know to have the confidence um, or to you know to have parents that give you the confidence is a great gift yeah no definitely so what is one of your most favorite memories of a time or place in nature and why I love this question because um, there is a very specific uh, there's a very specific moment. I went on a trip to Australia with a, a good friend of mine um, quite a long time ago <laughs> after university, and we went to a place called Fraser Island, which is the biggest breeding ground of sharks in the world, uh, tiger sharks. Um, and you get up at kind of 5.30 or 6 in the morning and hike to this point to see the sunrise. And it was a kind of rocky outcrop overlooking um, the bay and there was waves crashing against the rocks and you could see these uh, the water teeming with tiger sharks and stingrays and incredible nature and waves swelling far in the distance and just watching the waves as they kind of swelled and then came in towards the bay and then watching them as they went um, all the way to shore and then there was the tropical birds and I just completely zoned out um, I got in a kind of meditative state where I felt this great sense of just oneness of nature. Um, you know, the kind of oneness of all living things. Um, and yeah, that I haven't felt that. I, I don't think I've really felt that specifically at any other moment. Um, but it gave me, uh, it, it was a kind of quite a profound impact. And, you know, that is what I believe. I believe that um, we're all one, you know, humanity and all living things, we're all one. And in fact, that's, that's what Aduna means. So Aduna is a, a Wolof word, um, uh, which is the main tribal language of the Gambia and Senegal. And it means life or world. But if you ask people to explain what does it really mean other than, you know, life or world, they'll say it's a world in which, you know, um, if you do good things and good things will happen, if you do bad things, it will backfire. It's a world where, you know, it's the, the sky, the earth, the, the animals. So it's a whole kind of philosophy. Um, and yeah, so I think there's a link between that experience, that moment in Fraser Island um, with Aduna, what the word means and, and what the brand stands for. Hmm. No, that is really, really beautiful. And I mean, I, I suppose this is kind of a silly question to ask because um, you've kind of articulated a bit, but I'm going to ask it anyway to see if you want to add anything else. I mean, how have like this experience of having this moment of oneness with nature or any other experiences in nature influenced and impacted the work that you do? Well, I, I grew up in London, um, and so I never saw any of the, you know, the, the fruits or the vegetables. I just see them in kind of, I never saw them growing. I just see them in kind of a, a, on a plastic wrapped package in a supermarket. So my experience in Gambia with working with farmers and, you know, working with um, horticulture, learning about horticulture, um, because it was also a horticultural project, um, 
as well as a, a marketing project. Um, yeah, I mean, it just it, it, it feels it feels great to be connected to something as fundamental as basic as you know seeds in the earth growing. Um, and yeah, I'm very happy that we're we're involved now with obviously the baobab trees and with the UN project planting a lot of new trees. Um, I'm now back in London and again, kind of quite disconnected from nature. Um, so uh, it's it's difficult for me to stay, you know, stay connected um, in the same way. Um, but I go out once a year to Ghana um, and, you know, it's great to be out in the, um, you know, in the rural areas, around the communities, in the communities and around the trees. Yeah. So what's the one thing that you want people to take away from our conversation today, Andrew? Um, I, I guess I'm probably preaching to the converted with the audience of this podcast, but I think it's, um, I, 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 I believe that um, the future of, of capitalism, or capitalism 2.0 is businesses and enterprises that um, have a positive impact um, that are solving um, social or environmental problems and can be profitable uh, at the same time. So I, I think any, anyone who's considering starting a business, um, you know, it's not worth thinking about starting a business anymore unless it's doing that. Um, because, you know, we need, uh, there, there are so many problems to solve. Um, and, uh, you know, on, entrepreneurs, I think, can, you know, can be a huge part of the solution, you know, just by picking one very specific, uh, very specific problem. And if you have hundreds of thousands or millions of entrepreneurs working on their specific problems, you know, then we can solve a lot of, you know, a lot of what needs solving. Mm. Yeah. No, thank you so much for joining me today, Andrew. You're very welcome. Next time on Sustainable, I'm speaking to the immersive investigative journalist, anthropologist, explorer and public speaker, Sarah Begum. If you want to bring more nature into your life and your organisation, find out more about how EarthSelf's nature-connected coaching, consulting and training can help you and your organisation achieve optimal well-being and performance at www.earthself.org.